We're going to dive in. We're going through the book of Romans, and man, it has been incredible. We've seen God do some crazy good things. I, I have a front row seat. I, I would love to tell you all the stories of life change and all the incredible stories that I hear each and every week, whether from email or whether personal, of what God is doing. Uh, we're seeing people who, who've been living together who've said, man, I, I, I'm convicted. I, we're, we're planning to get married as we went through Romans. We're, we're seeing people redeemed and their lives rocked and, and transformed, not just here in Middle Tennessee who are physically here, but people who are watching all over the globe online, as many of you are right now, and thank you for watching online. Uh, I, we've gotten, we get emails from people who watch online all the time telling us what God is, is doing in their life. And we got a specific email uh, from a, a, a senior adult lady from New Mexico, and she said, man, I, 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 I was, uh, I, when I was young, I went to a Baptist church, and, and, and she said, man, I, it was really just irrelevant to my life at that point. I didn't really get it. She said, I became a Mormon. And I uh, was a Mormon for a while. I became a Jehovah Witness. And she said, and I really haven't been anything for a lot of years, a lot of time. And she said, I, Sunday, she was home, and someone checked in at Life Point Church. And don't even know if she knew them. It's just someone through someone and checked in and she saw it and she said, man, I'm going to go see what this is about. She clicked on it. She watched live. She said, you guys were going through Romans. And she said, through Romans, Jesus has totally redeemed and transformed my life. I went to the, to the Jehovah Witness and said, I'm done. Take me out. I'm not there anymore. And so God has redeemed me. And listen, that God is doing some great stuff through, through Romans. I believe it's because the theme of the book, the theme of this letter, Paul wrote a letter. We call it a book of the Bible, but it's really a letter here in the epistles, a letter that Paul wrote to the church at Rome. The theme of this letter is the gospel. As Paul said in 118, the gospel is the power of salvation to all who believe. Now, I said a few weeks ago, I believe that in America we are suffering from a spiritual famine. And I believe that spiritual famine flows out of a gospel famine. And what I mean by that is the gospel that we hear a lot today, the gospel that we, that we t sometimes uh, read or teach is a gospel that we've made into something that it's really not. I think most Christians obviously are familiar with the word. If you're a Christian, I hope you're familiar with the word gospel. But most do not know what it means because we've made it into something it's not. We hear God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Is that true? Absolutely. But that's only half the truth. And it really, to be honest, doesn't sustain and it doesn't satisfy in the long run. And that's why Paul has spent so much time through the first three chapters of Romans, that's why he spent so much time helping us to understand the bad news, the judgment, hell, the wrath of God and all, because he knows we can't understand the good news until we know the bad news. He knows we can't be saved until we understand our need for a Savior. So Paul's goal is to help us to understand that sin doesn't just affect our lives. It's not something we have to deal with, something we have to overcome. It doesn't just affect our lives. It completely mortifies every aspect of our being and really damns us to hell because it separates us from God and there's nothing we can do about it. So if you're looking for a self-help, feel-good, best-life-now book today, the first three chapters of Romans ain't it, okay? Uh, but today is a little different. Today is really different because today Paul shifts gears. He's been talking about hell, damnation. He's been talking about judgment, what we deserve. He's going to shift gears today to the good news. And it's really good news. And so we're going to look at it. And we're going to begin in Romans 3, 21. We're going to go through the end of the chapter today. And I'm going to start by reading 21 through 22a. So read with me if you will. But now, remember what Paul's been talking about for three chapters. But now, he says, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. 
Remember, the Jews were thinking about the laws, what saved them. The righteousness apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Okay? It's not new. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Now, Martin Luther said that this is the chief point of the Bible. This passage we're looking at today, he said, is the chief point of the Bible. For three chapters, Paul has been pummeling us with how we are lost, we're separated from God, we suppress the truth, rejected God, we, we deserve wrath, all that. And now he comes, but now things are changed. But now a righteousness of God has been revealed. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, but now are the two greatest words in the Bible. But now. But is a, a word that reverses a previous action, right? I mean, for example, the Titans were hopeless last year, but now we have Mariota, right? I mean, listen. I used to be my own boss, but then I got married, right? Listen, but is a word, but is a word that reverses the previous action. And here, Paul has been saying, listen, you deserve hell, but now you get heaven. You deserve death, but now you get life. You deserve punishment, but now you get grace. You deserve to be separated far from God, but now you get to be near God. You were an enemy of God, but now you're a friend of God. It's great news, but now, you see. Now, when we look at this, what we need to understand is the word righteousness and the word justification is the same Greek word here. And so, therefore, it could have said, but now, Paul could have said, but now a justification from God has been manifest that is received through faith. Now, this is going to be a mouthful, this message, all right? I, I want to tell you up front, Paul is a very theological dude, okay? His writings are very theological. Peter says in 2 Peter, sometimes Paul's hard to understand. So this is going to be a mouthful, but I want you to grasp for it. I'm not going to hold back with the words, but I'm going to explain the words, all right? We don't use words here to impress you. We want to use words here to help you understand God, right? And so I'm, I'm going to use them, but I'm going to explain them, right? And so, so Paul says here that our justification, our righteousness, our justification has been revealed or manifested that has received through faith in Jesus Christ. In the Latin, it's called sola fide. Now, sola fide, that's our bottom line today. Sola fide means faith alone in Latin. Sola fide, faith alone. So it's talking about justification, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. It's not faith in works. It's not faith in baptism. It's not faith in anything else. It's faith alone. Okay? We're saved by grace through faith alone. Sola fide. Now, sola fide, the doctrine of justification by faith alone, is so important. Luther said it is the article upon which the church stands or falls. If we preach anything but sola fide, if we preach salvation in any other way except faith, by grace through faith, we cease to be a biblical church. We will cease to be a true church, okay? So this, this doctrine is so important, it ignited the fiercest, uh, uh, the fiercest war within the church, the fiercest controversy, I should say, within the church in the 16th century. It was the, the Protestant Reformation. Thousands of people were literally hunted down like dogs, burned at the stake, and killed because they were warriors who fought for sola fide, the justification by faith alone. This doctrine is, is, is huge. And the issue of the Protestant Reformation was how can a rebellious enemy of God, like me and you, how can a rebellious enemy of God be saved from the wrath of a holy and righteous God? 
So how can we be justified, really, when we're sinners? How can we be justified? We've rebelled against God. We deserve death. How can God justify us? So we need to understand what justification is and what it isn't. Now, first, I want you to understand justification is not a pardon. I've heard people talk and even preachers maybe use illustrations that justification is a pardon. God did not pardon you. God did not pardon me. Now, let me help you to understand, you know what a pardon is, right? A pardon is when a president, it, most of us that, that you know, many of, most of you are of the age to where you have seen presidents, outgoing presidents, they will pardon criminals. Governors sometimes will pardon criminals. When a president or a governor pardons a criminal, what he does is he basically forgives the crime without any payment, right? Sets them free without any payment. That is not what God did in justification. Now, God obviously forgives. Forgiveness is a part of my justification, but it's not just forgiveness. God doesn't just forgive and, and you know, let us go scot-free without any payment. God actually makes a forensic or a legal declaration. And that legal declaration is I'm not just forgiven. God declares me righteous. He declares me just. He declares me holy. Now, when, when, and he does that, the, the battle is over how? Because in, in the 16th century, Rome, or when I say Rome here, we're reading the book of Romans, but in the 16th century, Rome is the Roman Catholics, right? Uh, Rome are the Catholics, uh, and the Protestants both agreed that God must declare you just. You can't go to heaven without being declared just by God. So they, they both agreed that you must be declared just. The, the fight was over how? How does God declare you just? I mean, you're a sinner. You deserve death. How does God declare you just? So the Catholics said faith is important, but the, the cause of justification primarily is the sacrament of baptism. The secondary cause is the sacrament of penance. And they believed that faith was important, grace was important, Jesus had to do his part, but you had to do your part. Primarily through the sacrament of baptism, which washed away original sin. So no heaven without baptism. You got baptized, that's why you see uh, babies, you know, right after birth that are, that are christened in the, in, the, in the Catholic faith because they believe it washes away original sin. And uh, that is the primary cause of justification. Faith is important, grace is important, Jesus had to do his part, but you had to do yours, right? Now, obviously, a baby is christened, but then a baby, you know, uh, grows, and, and from a baby, they begin to sin. So you're not righteous anymore. You're not just anymore. So secondarily, you're justified through the sacrament of penance, which is good works. In other words, when you do something wrong, you've heard people say, man, I need to do penance. Penance means I need to do, a good, uh, do enough good to make up for the bad thing I did, right? Uh, part of penance it was even indulgence, which means I've got to pull out my wallet, to be honest, and pay my sin debt off which is a, a real issue. And so, so they believe primarily baptism, secondarily penance, and, and, and they even here, they had this, this doctrine because they knew you, you, you can't really get into heaven when you die because uh, you have committed sins 
uh, after you were baptized, you committed sins after your penance, probably in death. And so if you didn't commit a mortal sin, then you went to a place called purgatory. They developed a doctrine of purgatory where you would go uh, to be purged uh, until you were pure enough to go to heaven. Now, it might be three days. It might be five million years that you're in purgatory. But you uh, are in purgatory until you're purged enough, punished enough to be pure enough so that you can then go to heaven, right? Now, this is what the, the reformers went to battle over. They went to battle over sola fide. Because it is the article upon which the church stands. It is vital to your faith. Because the, the reformers went to battle over what Paul taught in Romans 3.20 when he said, It is by no deeds of the law will any man be justified. By deeds of the law no man will be justified. It is not a righteousness that you can earn. You can do nothing for it. This speaks clearly to us today. Because so many people, as the Jews in that day were thinking, I'm Jewish, I've been circumcised, I keep the law, I do good works, I'm a good role model, I, I do all these things, I tithe, I, I do all these things, and God loves me and I'm good. And no, he said, God, those are not bad things, but that's not what makes you righteous. Today people say, yeah, I went to church, I, I, I was baptized, I've taught Sunday school, I, 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 give, I do this, I do this. No, we don't earn our righteousness with God. By deeds of the law, no man is justified. We don't earn it. We're given the righteousness from Jesus as we receive it through faith. Now, that's what Luther called it an alien righteousness. An alien righteousness means that, that it's alien from you. It's not from you. It's given to you by Jesus. Theologically, here's one of those mouthful. It's called imputed righteousness. Imputed means given to you. In other words, God gives you Jesus' righteousness. When you place your faith in him. Now, it's not a general faith. It's not a general faith in Jesus. Oh, Jesus was a good man. I believe Jesus existed. Oh, yeah, man. We, that's what Christmas. We celebrate Jesus' birthday. You know, I mean, uh, uh, eight pound, 11 pound, baby Jesus. I mean, we celebrate Jesus' birthday, right? I mean, Jesus, and uh, it's not a general faith in Jesus being a good man. It is a very specific faith in his work on the cross. The fact that he lived a perfect life died on the cross, came out of the grave on the third day, and is alive right now at the right hand of the Father. Very specific faith. When we do that, we're placing our faith in that. What we're doing is we're saying, I'm trusting in Jesus' righteousness, not mine. And when that happens, God imputes. He transfers. Actually, it's a double transfer. He transfers my sin to Jesus, and he transfers Jesus' righteousness to me. Okay? And so, so, so it's, it's, this, it's this thing called imputed righteousness, and, and uh, he gets my sin, and I get his righteousness. Now, Paul said, this is not a new doctrine dreamed up. He said, this is what the prophets in the Old Testament, they pointed towards. In other words, here's what you need to know, folks. The whole Bible, from Genesis chapter 1, all the way through the last chapter of Revelation, and everything in between is about one thing and one thing only, Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus. So that's what this church is all about. It's all about Jesus. The moment this church begins to be about anything but Jesus, then this church ceases to be a true biblical church. This is about Jesus. It's only about Jesus. It will always be about Jesus, okay? And so, so Paul said the whole Bible is about Jesus. It's the point of the Bible. So the big question is this. How can God, who is holy and who is righteous, and who is just, maintain his holiness and righteousness and justice. 
and not punish a sinner who is unrighteous and unholy and unjust. How can God maintain his righteousness, right? I mean, for instance, let's say that we got in our car today. We're driving home. And on our way home, uh, we look out as we're going through our neighborhood and we see a man literally beating his wife to death. Well, I don't know about you, but if you're a man, you're going to get out and take some action, right? Whoop some tail, call the popo, right? (laughs) Now, listen, let's say that you do that. God gets arrested, goes to jail. You're called in. You're a key witness. You go in and the judge from the bench says, you know what? I'm a good and gracious and loving judge. So I'm just going to let you go free because I'm going to give you a second chance. We would be outraged. I would be outraged. That's not justice. That's injustice. I would scream for the dude to be removed. He's not worthy to be a judge. Remove him from the, from the bench. Disbar him. He is obviously not fit to be a judge. God would agree. You see, in Proverbs 17, God says that anyone who justifies or to justify the wicked is an abomination before the Lord. God's a just God. God will never compromise his justice. And so therefore, he could not just overlook your sin. This answers a question of people like, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? I mean, couldn't God just have said, okay, it's done, good, you're you're good little boy. I mean, why? Because God is just and he could not overlook sin. Our sin is an affront to the glory and the goodness and the holiness of God. And he cannot just overlook it. The price was death and he couldn't overlook it. So the big question of the Bible, here's the big question of the Bible. How can God... How can God allow an unrighteous and unjust and unholy person to be right in his sight? How can that happen? You see, the question that most often we hear today uh, from people who don't know Christ is this. How can God, uh, if he's a loving God, how can a loving God send anyone to hell? That's the question that we hear, right? I mean, if God's good, how can he punish people? If God's loving, how can he send anyone to hell? Seth, my son, was on the campus at MTSU the other day, and he heard a a, a girl talking to some other girls, and she said, well, if there's a hell, then that's where I want to be, because if God's going to send anybody to hell, he's not a God I want to serve, right? Well, she spoke the truth. At least I respect, because that's her thought. She spoke the truth. But the question is that we hear most is, how can a loving God send anybody to hell? Let me tell you what the question of the Bible is. How in the world can a just God let anybody go to heaven? That's the real question. See, the question's changed. If God's holy, God's true, God's just, God's pure. How can that God let anybody go to heaven? That's what Paul answers in verses 22 and on here. So let's, let's dive in. Verse 22b through 25a, he says this, For there is no distinction, no distinction, remember he's talking about Jews and Gentiles, there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I use that verse 23 Practically every time that I dive into the specifics, nuts and bolts of sharing my faith, I use Romans 3.23. I I challenge you to memorize this entire passage, specifically 3.23 and 24, okay? Key verses to sharing your faith. You need these verses within your brain, okay? So 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. 23, 24, both very important, okay? Whom God put forward as a propitiation. Boy, that's a, that's, like, that's, that's a big word, okay? I want you to know the word, okay? It's in the Bible. I want you to know the word because I want you to, I want you to, gra- I want you to understand deeper the things of God. So I'm going to explain it, 
I want you, when we go out of here, you're going to be able to know what that word means. Easy, okay? By his blood, propitiation, by his blood, to be received by faith. Okay, now, what we see here is, Paul says, there is no distinction. What he's talking about between Jews and Gentiles when it comes to being right with God. There is no distinction. In other words, what he's saying, everybody, all people everywhere are separated from God. All people uh, deserve to be damned to hell. All people need the gospel. Folks, let me make sure you understand something. This is why we are ascending church. This is right here. We are a sending church. You're new to our church. You're trying to figure out if we're, uh, you know, your cup of tea is a church. We are a sending church. We're all about Jesus, and Jesus is all about the nations. He's all about his glory among the nations. So that's why we're a sending church. That's why we've got people in Brussels. That's why we have people in Bangkok. That's why we're sending people to India. Uh, that's why we ask you to give to our one-day offering because we're a sending church. That's why we send you into our community, into your job, and into your school. We send because all people, all people need the gospel. Now here's what I heard. I've heard I, I don't hear this much anymore, but sometimes our missionaries that are raising money, because our missionaries that go, they have to raise money for their salary. We provide their budget. That's what your one-day offering does. We provide their budget. We rent their facilities. We, we, you know, we provide money for them to do ministry with people and all that kind of stuff. Uh, they have to raise their own salary. And as they're raising, they, here's what they tell me. They hear a lot. And I, I used to hear this a lot. Is, well, why don't we go over there when there's all kind of people right here that need Jesus? I mean, ain't Sally needs Jesus. Why are we going to go over there? Right? I mean, I hear that. My response is always, yeah, there is a ton of people here that need Jesus. So I got, why don't you go tell them about Jesus? Okay? If Christians would tell people here about Jesus, they would, listen, that problem could be alleviated. So first off, we need to go tell those people about Jesus, but we're not elitist. Listen, people are people. God created all people, and God told us to go to the nations, make disciples, and we want to obey God, okay? That's why we sin, because God told us to. That, it doesn't matter, you, you, you know, the, the whole deal about the bumper stickers, bumper sticker theology, it's some funny stuff sometimes, right? God is my co-pilot. Somebody's got that on there. Stay away because, listen, they don't know what they're talking about. God's our co-pilot. They're in trouble. God better be your pilot. If you got that on your car, I'm sorry. Take it off, okay? <laughs> right? Or what about this? God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. Man, go rip that off. It doesn't matter. Or go scratch out, I believe it. It doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. God said it, that settles it, Right? So God said to go, and we're going to go, right? Now, so he says there's no distinction. And then he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, get this. All have sinned, right? All. That means you, and that means me. It reflects back to 3.10 through 12. Remember when Paul said, none is righteous, no, not one. No one seeks God. No one understands. No one does good. Not one. No single person. All people have sinned. All people. That's why I share this. Because I want people to understand, you are a sinner. You've rebelled against God. All people have. Don't think you're special or anything different. All people are sinners. Right? That's what Paul said. Th think about this. God created the entire universe and every atom and everything in existence. And here's what God says. God tells the rain, I want you to fall right over here. And rain said, yes, sir. God tells the snow, I want you to not fall here. And the snow says, okay. God tells the ocean, this is your limit. You're not going beyond this. And the ocean obeys immediately. Every aspect of creation immediately obeys God except man. And we say, nah, we think we know better. We're going to do our own thing. 
Every aspect of creation obeys God except man. And we rebelled against God. And it says all have rebelled against God and we've fallen short of his glory. Now, when you read scripture, his glory refers to his weight or his presence. His presence. And so what, what Paul is saying here is all humanity has suppressed the truth about God, rejected God, rebelled against God. And as a result, we are separated from his glory. We're separated from his presence. We're separated from his presence, and we deserve to be punished for that. We deserve damnation. We deserve split hell wide open. All those things. That's what Paul's been saying for three chapters. But now, he says, a righteousness of God. The justification from God has been revealed. That's what he says in 326. All have sinned. You've sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You've rebelled against God and are separated from him. But verse 24, which is amazing, says... And you're justified by his grace, by his grace as a gift through redemption, that is Christ Jesus. Through his redemption, that is Christ Jesus. So as we look at that, man, what we see here is the Jews, they would have completely gotten the redemption aspect. That's another big word, redemption. You know, the Jews would have gotten that because it was common in their day to get so completely indebted to someone that you basically had to sell yourself to lifelong slavery. So God made a provision for what's called a kinsman redeemer. If you read the story of Ruth, Ruth and Boaz, it's a kinsman redeemer story. Boaz is the kinsman redeemer who purchases, buys Ruth. Well, what Paul is saying here when he's talking about redemption through Jesus, he's talking about the fact that we are enslaved to sin. We're enslaved. Every aspect of our being is mortified by sin. We're enslaved to it. It controls us. And Jesus, with his atoning sacrifice, he bought us back. He bought us back. He purchased us back. And, and, and that's what, when he talks about the propitiation by his blood, that word propitiation, let's talk about that word. Some translations use expiation, all right? Now, those are two words, and you're going, oh, well, I, I, you're going to get them because these are very easy. And they're very important words because they have tremendous meaning. They're in the Bible, and every word of the Bible is important. So when he says the propitiation by his blood, he said you have redemption by Jesus. In other words, Jesus bought you back by the propitiation through his blood. Propitiation is a word that simply means this. When God's wrath is turned from the one who deserves it and diverted to one who doesn't deserve it, it's propitiated, okay? Now, expiation means your sin is taken away. That's sort of like a pardon, right? And God does expiate our sins. He takes it away. But he does so much more. He doesn't just take our sin away. He diverts his wrath. He propitiates. So when you hear the word propitiation, Jesus is our propitiation. It means that God, his wrath was squarely set on you because you were a rebel enemy of God. And his wrath was headed straight for you. And if you don't know Jesus, it is still headed straight for you. And his wrath was headed straight for you, was diverted from you who deserve it to Jesus who didn't. That's propitiation. Expiation means he took it away. On the Day of Atonement, they illustrated this very vividly. Yom Kippur, it's called. They would, the, the high priest, they would take two perfect goats, bring the goats in, and the high priest would slaughter one of the goats. Bloody slaughter one of the goats. It was a symbol of God's wrath should fall on all of you because of your sin. But this goat is a symbol that his wrath is on, is, is on something else. Now, they would take the other goat, the priest would lay his hands on the goat, 
confess the sins of the people, and then run it out of town, chase the, the, the goat through the woods. As the sin went away, it was a symbol that God is taking away your sin. Because it is diverted, the punishment was taken by this goat, and your sin is taken away. Propitiation, your sin, your wrath was diverted to someone who didn't deserve it, uh, instead of the one who did. Expiation, your sin was taken away. So Paul here is saying that God has justified you, and, and, I, and I want you to, to, to understand and get this very vividly. For three chapters, Paul's been saying, look, we've suppressed the truth. We've rejected God. We've done our own thing. All of creation obeys him. All of creation magnifies him, points to his glory. That's why the rocks declare the glory of God. All of creation obeys him, but not man. Humanity said, I want to do my own thing. I believe I know better. And he says, as a result, you're a rebellious sinner, an enemy of God, and God's wrath is going to fall on, on those who are rebels against him. And there's nothing you can do about it. But now he comes into verse 21, and he starts, but now, but now, you can't do anything about it, but now Jesus did. He, Jesus was the sacrifice that propitiated God's wrath. In other words, God's wrath that should have fell on you was given to Jesus on the cross. He took your sin away. That's how a righteous, holy, and just God, that's how a God who is holy and righteous can justify an enemy, a sinner of God, a rebel against God, and not compromise his justice. That's how. Because God is the one who declared that the penalty was death. He's the judge, and the judge took the judgment. God the judge took the judgment. We're saved from God by God. He can declare us righteous because he took his wrath and punishment that we deserve and he gave it to Jesus who didn't deserve it. So therefore, he can declare us righteous and never compromise his righteousness. He can declare us just and never compromise his justice. Right? In the Garden of Gethsemane, you remember? Before, if, you, if you're new to church, if you've not read the Bible, then uh, Jesus, the night before he was crucified, he was arrested. Before he was arrested, he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was a garden uh, which meant oil press or wine press. And, 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 and they would, it, he was in the garden and he was praying in the garden. And it says that he was in such anguish, such extreme pressure, that he literally sweat drops of blood. Now that's not a metaphor. It really happened. There's a medical condition called hematidrosis, which means that you get so pressure, you're under so much stress and pressure that the subcutaneous capillaries in your, in your, in your veins burst and, and, and mixed with blood, sweat, they flow down your face. Jesus was in such agony, he was in such anguish over what was going to happen tomorrow that he was sweating great drops of blood. Now here's where the theology comes into play. You see, some people say, oh, Jesus was in such agony because he knew the cat of nine tails would tear his back apart. He knew that the nails would be driven into his hands and his feet and the crown of thorns beat into his head. He knew he would hang naked on a cross and have a sword thrust, a spear thrust into his side. He knew that, and he did because he was fully God. He was fully human, but he was fully God. And in being fully God, he knew every bit of that. He knew the physical pain that he would take. But I'm going to tell you that I don't believe that's why Jesus was in anguish in the garden. I don't believe Jesus was afraid of crucifixion. 
I don't believe Jesus was in, in anguish over nails being thrust and driven into his hands and a, and, a, and a spear being thrust into his side. I don't think Jesus was crying and shedding a tear over a crown of thorns being beaten into his head. I don't think that was it at all. Jesus was not afraid of the crucifixion. Jesus prayed, Father, may this cup be taken from me. All through Scripture, the cup is the cup of God's wrath. Jesus was in agony in the garden, not because of the physical pain that he would endure. He was in agony in the garden because of the spiritual pain that he would endure. He was in agony, and it was absolutely killing him because the wrath of a righteous and holy God who would pour out his righteous and holy anger upon Jesus for the sin of you and for my sin and your sin that was thrust upon Jesus on the cross. The reason God turned his head from Jesus on the cross was not so he couldn't see his son suffering. Some people say, well, he didn't want to see his son suffering, and so he turned away. No, that's not why God turned his head. He turned his head because my sin and your sin was placed upon Jesus. The sin of all people he would redeem was placed upon Jesus on the cross. That's the theological depth of the cross, that when God looked, he's seeing all the sin on Jesus, and he turns away because he cannot see that. Jesus wasn't in agony because of the physical pain. He was in agony because of the spiritual pain of suffering the wrath of God for my sin and for your sin, for all who were redeemed. That's the depth. That's why God could say, I can maintain my justice. I can maintain my justice, and I can justify sinners because I'm not letting them go free. I'm not letting it slide. I'm paying for it with the ultimate price. The judge took the judgment. Jesus, who didn't deserve my, my, my penalty, got my penalty. And so, in 25 through 26, he says this. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. He's talking about Moses' sin and Noah's sin and... He's talking about Abraham's sin. This was to show God's, uh, uh, or it was, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So some people say, okay, well, I, I get it, Jesus, but what about Moses? He didn't know Jesus. God let him into heaven. God let, him in, God let Noah into heaven. God let Abraham into heaven. He didn't know Jesus. Did he, just, did he not just let him in? No. That's what God is saying. God said he didn't overlook those sins. He just didn't forgive them until he punished his son on the cross. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying Moses is saved exactly like you and only like you through faith in the Messiah. Moses just looked forward in faith, whereas you look back. He's saying God did not pass over the sins of the Old Testament saints because Jesus had not yet died. He just deferred payment on those sins until Jesus, his death on the cross. That's what he's saying here. And so, you know, God is both the just and the justifier because his justice, he set the standard. He made the rules, and he's the justifier. He's the one who, who paid the penalty. He's the just and the justifier. Now, let's close it out, 27 through 31. And we're going to dovetail this 27 through 31 into next week because it flows right into Abraham, all right? He says, then what becomes of our boasting? This is what I'm going to close with. What becomes of our boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, all of, all, of Gentiles also. Since God is one 
who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So here's what Paul, Paul's wrapping up solifida. Remember, he's talking to a group of Jews who are boasting in everything they've done. They're boasting in my birth. I'm Jewish. I'm American. I was born in a Christian country. I'm circumcised. I was baptized. I was a church member. I've done a lot of good works. I taught Sunday school. I, I, I was a part of a small group. I've got gold stars for attendance. Man, I, I've been a good role model. I do good things. I'm better. If, people, if, if God looks at me and he looks at a lot of people in the world, he's going to say, you're, you're a lot better. They were boasting in the works of the law. They were boasting in who they were. And, and Paul said, you think that's going to do you any good? It's not going to do anything for you. It's not going to do, if you boast in your work, you boast in, in what you've done, that's going to get you nowhere. He said, this is where true worship really happens. When you realize your situation, when you realize, this is what Paul has done through three chapters, help us realize our situation. When you realize our situation, when you realize that I am condemned because I suppressed the knowledge of God and rejected him. And as a result, I'm dead spiritually. As a result, I deserve death. I deserve hell. I deserve judgment. But because of what Jesus did on the cross, through, by his grace, through faith, I get redemption, justification, forgiveness, propitiation. His sin, his wrath is diverted to Jesus, not me. And because of that, I'm, I'm redeemed. I deserve death. I get life. I deserve hell. I get heaven. I deserve to be, I'm an enemy of God. But now because of Jesus, I'm a friend of God. When I see that, I no longer boast in me. I realize I would be a fool to boast in me. I would be a fool to say, I have anything to do with this. I would be a fool to say, oh, look at how good I am. Because I realize that God has loved me when I'm unlovable. That he has forgiven me when I needed to be punished. That when I should have suffered wrath, I get grace. That causes me to burst forth in worship and praise of God. And what that should cause me to do is this. It should cause us to realize, to see the vast difference in the modern feel-good gospel. The one that says, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, which is true, but it's not the whole truth. The whole truth is, I deserve death, hell, and judgment, and there's nothing I can do about it. But when I realize that, and I realize that he diverted his wrath from me and gave it to Jesus, and rather than death, I get life, and rather than hell, I get heaven, and rather than being an enemy of God, I'm a friend of God, rather than Satan, I get Jesus. When, that, when I realize that, that should cause all of my boasting to be in the cross because I realize all of my righteousness is in the cross of Christ. And Paul closed this out by saying, so what are we going to do? We're going to do away with the law because, oh, it's all by faith. Because you see, there are people, you remember I saw the antinomianism, which is people that says, well, if it's all by faith, then just do whatever you want to do, right? <laughs> I mean, God saved you. Absolutely not. That's what Paul said. He said, first off, we don't do away with the law because Jesus fulfilled the law. 
He is the fulfillment of the law. So we don't do away with the law. And he said, second off, we don't do away with the law because when I realize what God has done for me, I literally want to worship him with every ounce of my being. I want to gather with God's people on Sundays or on Saturdays or whenever we gather. I want to gather with God's people corporately to declare his praise, not to just come to check it off. But I want to gather to declare his praise. But it's not just about a Sunday thing. It's beyond Sunday. It's every moment of every day. When I realize that I'm saved by grace through faith, and my boasting is only in the cross of Christ and not in anything I do, when I realize that, that makes me want to worship God by how I view my money and what I do with my money, by how I view sex, by how I treat my wife, and when we have difficulties, how I engage that, how I treat my kids, and when I, when I make mistakes, how I handle those mistakes. When I need to forgive, it's how I forgive, and when I need to be forgiven, how I receive and respond to that. That changes everything because all of my life is lived as an act of worship because God is the one who has redeemed me. It is sola fida in faith alone. It's by grace through faith, not of works, so nobody can boast about it. It is only in the cross of Christ, and that changes everything, folks. Everything. And so, today, if you're a believer, if you're a believer, I hope you're beginning to understand the depth of the gospel and the depth of your salvation. And it's not just a good feel-good Christmas story. It's not just, you know, a a bedtime story. It's not just, oh, man, I love Jesus. He's a good man and he saved me. But no, it's the depth of who he is and what he did and that caused you to live differently. If you're not a believer, here's what I want you to understand. You've never given your life to Jesus. You need to understand that some of you say, well, I'll wait till I get my life in order. That's never going to happen. You're never going to be good enough. You're never going to be good enough. It's only by grace through faith. And here's what you need to understand. Your sin will not be overlooked. Your sin will not be swept under the rug. Either Jesus Christ suffered the wrath of God for your sin on the cross, or you will for all of eternity. It will not go unpunished. It will not be overlooked. So I call you today, if you're not a believer, I call you to bow your heart and bow your knee to Jesus Christ and trust in his righteousness and not in your own and receive life instead of death, heaven instead of hell, Jesus instead of everything else that you could possibly imagine that's nothing compared to Jesus Christ. Today I call you to do that. Come back and talk to us. Church, listen. Thank you for letting us preach this book. It is an amazing book. It's not a book to where we're talking about, oh, you know, how to do this and how to do that. I understand that. But it is a book that doesn't just sustain you for the day and make you feel good through lunch. It's a book that will give you depth of your soul to make it through life. Not just dragging across the finish line, but running across the finish line if you really get the depth of what God is teaching in his word. I'm going to pray. Travis is going to come, and and he's going to lead us in a time of worship. Some of you are going to respond by just absolutely thanking God that he has redeemed you because of his propitiation. His wrath was diverted. His expiation, your sin was taken away. You're justified. You're redeemed. And any other big word we can come up with, right? But they're true because of Jesus. Jesus, that's what we're about. So let's pray, and you respond how God has led you to respond. Father, we love you. Thank you for your amazing grace. God, thank you for the depth of your word. Thank you, Lord, that you are so infinite that we can never get our mind around you. 
But God, thank you that you open up more and more and illuminate more and more of your word when we dig in. I pray we would be people of your word, and I pray that your word would change us. I pray, Jesus, that the depth of the knowledge of your sacrifice, your atoning sacrifice on the cross would literally rock our world. I pray for every Christian in here, God, to not be satisfied with playing church and just calling themselves a Christian. I pray that every true Christian in this place and watching online today would literally not be satisfied until we are full on, full in. Not going to be perfect. But until we are running hard after your heart, because we understand who you are and all of our boasting and all of our worship is in you because of what you did on the cross. That would change how we worship on Sunday morning and how we worship on Monday and Tuesday and Friday and every day of our life that we live because you are our redemption. We boast in you and you alone. Pray that you would open eyes and save souls today. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.